Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where my goal is to have quality conversations to help you along your parenting journey. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today's episode will be about a very common topic of concern, and that is what can we do about constipation? Today's guest is Dr. Tanaz Danielafar, and she works as a pediatric gastroenterologist at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. She has wonderful credentials. She's a graduate of Yale Medical College, and she's a frequent lecturer, which incidentally is how I first met Tanaz, by being an attendee years ago at a lecture she gave on, can you guess? That's right, constipation. She's a mother of three young children, and she truly has a gift when it comes to being a caring, knowledgeable doctor. Thank you so much for listening, and please pass this episode along to anyone who you think may benefit from hearing this conversation. Welcome to Naz Danielafar. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. You're going to talk about a topic that I get so many questions about, constipation. Believe it or not, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And most pediatricians and most pediatric gastroenterologists are shocked when I say that. But I really love taking care of constipation. And I think when you have some important information and basics, it's such an easy problem to treat. And it is so satisfying and rewarding for the families. I'm so curious. Can you explore this a little bit more? Tell me, why why do you find it so satisfying? Is it because you can fix it? I can fix it. I, and I often see parents and children who've been struggling for many, many, many years. And the stigma is really significant. So a lot of people recognize constipation as my child can't go to the bathroom, my child's struggling to go to the bathroom. But when it's ongoing, those children start to have a lot of abdominal complaints, their appetite gets down, a lot of behavioral issues related to that discomfort. And in the most severe situations, they actually start to have very frequent leakage. And so it's not unusual to see school-age children, I've taken care of even middle school-age children, who are coming in with incontinence or leakage of poop. And with the right steps and the right things, these children who've been struggling for years and years can have so much improvement in not a very long amount of time. If we see kids where this goes on for years and years, it's a shame they don't connect with you sooner. And, you know, it's not necessarily that they need me sooner. I think if, if as a parent and when I see families in clinic, the biggest thing I would tell you is be aggressive and consistent in treating constipation in the young child. Because if you do so, you're going to nip it in the bud and you're not going to struggle with issues for a very long time. One of the most common problems that I see is parents will give treatment. They'll give laxatives. The constipation's better, they stop the treatment, it comes back, they restart treatment, and they go in these on and off cycles. And in my experience, probably the most common factor that makes constipation a difficult and ongoing issue are the behavioral issues that happen as a result of longstanding constipation. That's so interesting. So less about the diet and more about the behavior? Yes. I... I am not one that really pushes diets when I'm managing constipation. And I'll tell you why. One of the most common ages that we'll see constipation becomes prevalent is in toddlers. And it's often really linked with toilet training, toilet avoidance. There's this very weird, irrational fear of poop in the toilet among toddlers. I think a big part of that has to do that toddlers are controlling and they have no control over anything in their lives. And the one thing they can control is what comes out of their butt. And so one of my thoughts is that adding in dietary modifications, it's not that they don't work, 
But the extent that you want to use them to is just another point of contention that you're having with your child. And I would rather we're minimizing those things and all the behavioral focus is on what's happening with toileting. I also find the reality of the situation is that when I advise parents to alter their toddler's diet, it's really easy advice to give, but really hard to follow. I mean, to tell a child, oh, you you need to eat more fruits and vegetables, that sounds great. But in actuality, I know it's hard for parents. It's hard for kids to make adjustments. And and that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think, you know, I was a okay doctor before I had kids. I think I became a much better doctor after I had kids. And a lot of that is the reality of how do you implement the advice that we're giving people. And so I really try to have that guide the 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 decision making. And that also goes into how we choose medications and all that stuff. The other problem is that dietary therapy will help if you are mildly constipated. If you had some firm poops, but you're still going to the bathroom, we can make some modifications. Or if you're very obviously not drinking water. Another big culprit is children who drink excessive amounts of milk, right? So I'm saying in excess of 18 to 20 ounces of milk a day. Those are easy changes. But beyond that, when you're more significantly constipated, dietary modifications are generally not going to get you where we need the stool to be. And one of the most important things that I do when I manage constipation, when I manage the behavioral aspects, is get the stools even softer than what we think of as a normal stool. And it's really beyond what you'll achieve with diet. That's such good advice. So for parents that are listening to this and they're hearing, okay, I really want to make sure my child does not get constipated. What are the signs that parents should look for? I know you mentioned some, some behavioral concerns. What else should parents be looking for? If you've never Googled the Bristol stool scale, I would stop right now and ask you to do that. It's a very easy to follow chart and it has numbers, descriptions, and pictures of what a healthy poop should look like. Um, and it will grade it from what's a liquid diarrhea and it gets softer, uh, it gets more and more formed. And the middle range is like a skinny hot dog or little pieces falling apart. That's where we really want the poops to be. As you move up from that, you get into these big, fat, chunky, then clusters of grapes and little nuggets. So if your child poop, child's poops look like little nuggets, big, fat logs with, with like cracks all around them, that's an important thing that you want to look for. And many of us are not looking at our children's poop. I'm going to be honest. I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, a 6-year-old. I'm generally not in there. So a poop check as kind of every once in a while or remind your child to look at their poop is very helpful. Frequency of going to the bathroom, I, I say we want to be five to six days of the week, right? So generally every day to every other day. If you're having many, many days in between, that's problematic. Children who spend prolonged periods of time in the bathroom, anyone with pain when they're going to the bathroom. And one that we don't often think about is accidents. A child who starts having really frequent stooling accidents, many of those children are constipated and are withholding. And the last one is just good old fashioned abdominal pain, especially pain that will often occur after meals. It can be very crampy. What happens is after a meal, the stomach will stimulate the colon to start squeezing. And if you're constipated, you've got those hard, chunky poops, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. So anytime at home when my kids tell me, mom, I have a stomach ache, 
The first question I ask them is, when did you go to the bathroom? What did your poop look like? And, and that's kind of where we will always start when we talk about belly pain. So let's say a parent notices one of these signs. They're concerned their child's constipated. What's the first thing that they should think about? What, what kind of action steps should, should they take? I think that really depends on kind of where you are in the spectrum. If your child's having occasional abdominal pain, some missed days, some hard stools, check in on the diet as a very easy first starting point, right? Are we getting enough water? Could I do better with fruits and vegetables? Are we eating really excessive amounts of starches in ways that are easy for you to make modifications? The next thing, if you've done those things and you're still having firm poops or you're having a lot of missed days, is use a stool softener. Don't hesitate to use a stool softener. Use it early, use it consistently. So one of the biggest pitfalls that I see is once someone is already constipated, people will then take a stool softener. Let's say it's milk of magnesia or Miralax. And then they say, oh my God, it, it doesn't work for me. Because the poop that's sitting in that child's colon, the poop that's at the very end, is poop from three days ago. So the Miralax you took today is not going to all of a sudden make you have a bowel movement. You really think about stool softeners as ongoing therapies. You give two or three days till you see a change, consistently keeping the poops soft. I feel like I have to do the scrunchy talk, Jessica. Don't you think so? Well, I, I was just going to say, um, I, I, I heard you give a lecture on constipation a few years ago, and I loved it so much that I commonly quote you. Um, I talk about the, I, well, you called it the scrunchy talk, I, or, or the rubber band analogy, and I love it. So yeah, I would love if you would explain. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like talk, the, once the once you analogy. hear the scrunchy talk, it all makes sense. And I'm so happy scrunchies are back in fashion because I used to give the scrunchy talk and nobody knew what I was talking about. But the idea here is that your colon, which is kind of where the poop is held and where it will sit before it comes out, is a very elastic and stretchy organ. It's meant to stretch when it fills with poop and then you will empty, you'll go to the bathroom and it should shrink back down to normal. What happens in someone who's been constipated over a period of time, that's generally talking about months that you're now having changes, is the colon becomes like a scrunchie that's lost its elasticity. So you know that scrunchie that's now loose and floppy? It's stretched out, it's bigger, and then we have a couple of problems that happen secondary to that. And understanding those problems will really help you manage what you do after that. So the first problem is that urge, the kind of butt feeling that I need to go to the bathroom, will come when you have totally filled your colon. So if you have a colon that's stretched out three times the size of normal, and you have a normal size poop, that child will not actually recognize urge to go to the bathroom. And that's what propagates this every three or four day bowel movements. The problem is as stool or poop sits in your body, it gets bigger and harder. And then when you ultimately go to the bathroom, it's painful, uncomfortable, difficult to come out. So you're now reinforcing the problem because A, you often don't completely evacuate because they're hard to move. And B, that really causes behavioral issues because those children are having pain and discomfort, and then they start to do everything they can to hold their poop in. 
The second thing that happens is the muscles of the colon actually don't work at their optimal capacity when it's so stretched out. So you have a relatively weakened muscle, and so your ability to move things becomes impaired. And that all of that will improve. The, the best part of all this is if you can keep the colon empty consistently, it will shrink back down to normal. It will recover function. But that's a process that takes time. So when I say the biggest pitfall is people go on and off and on and off medicine, it's because they haven't actually really healed or rehabilitated the colon. And once you do, you're going to have lasting ongoing success. And not every constipated child becomes a constipated adult, especially if you treat it early on. So my big question is, how long should parents expect to take uh, stool softeners? So I understand that you know, there's hope that if they take ongoing treatment, we will see a uh, long lasting improvement, but can you give parents an idea of how long to expect? It really depends on what stage you're in the age of your child and what the behavioral factors are. So I'll say the most kind of common situation that I find is those toddlers that were really struggling around toilet training time. So for those children, what I suggest is you are going to stay on a laxative until the child is having daily spontaneous urge on their own and there's no withholding behavior. And so you really want to be completely, completely toilet trained. I, I really recommend people who have constipated toddlers stay on some version of a laxative until they finish toilet training and they've really solidly toilet trained. Do you have a favorite laxative? Speaking of laxatives. Um, Honestly, my favorite laxative is the one that the child will take. That's really, really what guides my decision-making. Um, and a lot of families have strong feelings about laxatives, which I want to incorporate into my practice. So I'll tell you the three most common that I use. The first one is Miralax. It's also known as polyethylene glycol. And it got a very bad reputation a few years ago because there were a lot of reports of behavioral issues and neuropsychiatric issues reported to the FDA. Um, none of that has actually ever been founded. What we saw was when the media started covering it, more and more people started reporting it. But it's such a widely used medication that the numbers actually don't really add up. The FDA funded a study at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to really look and see, do you significantly absorb polyethylene glycon in, in your body and what happens? And it actually didn't get very far because they can't even measure levels of it in the bloodstream. They did do a study where they gave it to mice and they looked for behavioral changes and changes in their bacterial environment. It was a really nicely designed study and that found no significant changes. Um, so I, I feel very comfortable using it. I feel very comfortable using it in the long term, but I respect parents who don't want to use it. And I'm not trying to push it on them because we have alternatives with regards to the behavioral concerns. I think it's, it's, it can be a chicken and an egg phenomenon because many kids that have behavioral or developmental concerns tend to be, or, or may be more often constipated. So it's hard from my understanding to know which, which is the, um, you know, which, What's the which cause is truly, the, yes. yeah, which is truly the cause. Absolutely. That's such so, an important point. That's a really, really big part of it. And my inkling is it's likely the behavioral concerns that began it all, but who yes. knows? Yes. No. And a, a lot of times that's often the case. Um, but listen, rare and random things happen. 
Is it a widespread issue? No. If it were, we would have seen it. It's probably like the most commonly prescribed medicine among pediatric gastroenterologists and, and many pediatricians as well. I think that's a very good point that if, if there is a concern in that, in that realm and uh, a behavioral concern that it's likely very rare. Yeah. Um, why do I not like Miralax? Miralax works when it's taken appropriately, which means the right amount of powder in the right amount of water that you drink within about 30 minutes. How old are your kids, Jessica? I don't remember. Seven, nine, and 12. Would your seven-year-old drink four to eight ounces of liquid in one sitting? It'd be really tough. It, it's tough, right? And so a lot of people are sending the Miralax in the water bottle to school. Who knows how much you drink? It doesn't really have the same effect. Many people will put it in the bottle with milk. Not my worst option, but also not how it optimally works. Um, so it's a challenging medicine to administer appropriately. And that's that's the main reason I may shy away from it. I think a lot of doctors really are in favor of Miralax or speak highly of it because it's tasteless, odorless, it's easy to mix in anything. But you're absolutely correct that to mix it in enough water or fluids could be a, could be tricky. Yeah. And for those who are using it, a full scoop of Miralax needs eight ounces of water. A half a scoop of Miralax needs four ounces of water. So it is, it is pretty significant. And it's one of the reasons people often think that it doesn't work for them. Now, you mentioned also that very little got absorbed in the animal studies that you looked at. I've always learned that one of the benefits of Miralax is very little gets absorbed, if at all. Is that, is that true? That's, that's true of every laxative. So any laxative that we use, the way they work, most of these what we call osmotic laxatives, is that they draw water into the, into the intestines because they sit in the intestine, they change the concentration. That's how almost all of them work. So we worry very little about systemic absorption of laxatives. What do I like other than Miralax? These days, I use a lot of magnesium. I like it because it comes in every dosage form you could imagine. It's very quote unquote safe and natural. And I, and I say that not to be kind of um, belittling, but I think people feel better with a naturally occurring compound, right? Magnesium is part of our diets. It's part of our food that we eat. It's, it's something very kind of health healthful. And it actually has really beneficial side effects. Magnesium is often used for sleep and calm and reduction of anxiety. You can use magnesium as a powder, like brands such as MagCom, for example, as a gummy, as a chewable kind of candy, as a tablet, as a liquid. So in any age range, I feel really comfortable that I can find a version of magnesium that my patient is going to be okay with. Um, if you're looking for magnesium over the counter, it's generally not branded as a stool softener. And if it is, it doesn't say that it's branded as a stool softener. So I'll give you an example. Pedialax Saline Chewable Laxative. It's one of my favorites. It's a watermelon, kind of like a sweet tart texture. It's a watermelon chew. It's very easy to use in young children, school-age children. It actually, the active ingredient is magnesium, but you wouldn't look at it on the shelf and know that you're buying magnesium. The version of magnesium we often see on the shelf will say on the bottle for sleep or for stress, and people get confused with what they're buying. It's actually the exact same thing. The side effect of too much magnesium is diarrhea. 
So in a constipated person, that's exactly what we take advantage of. We push the magnesium, we push your limits of absorption of magnesium. There's some common probiotics that people yeah, like taking yeah. for, for constipation. What do you think? Uh, there's really no evidence to suggest that they work consistently. So my thing about probiotics is sure, maybe, why not? I don't know. Anecdotally, you will hear some people tell you probiotics were a game changer for them. Is it true of the large scale population? Generally not. So I don't think there's a downside. I think the future is that everything is going to come back to our bacterial in environment, right? And the, we'll eventually get to a place where we really map out what bacteria you have in your body and what you're missing for what specific problem. But the probiotics available on the market are a handful of bacteria and not everyone may have that as their particular problem. Right. No, I think it's one of those industries. It's one of those solutions that sounds good, but in actuality, I don't find that it's very helpful for most kids that take a probiotic. Right? Yeah. I think, I think many of us feel the same way, but there's very little downside. So I don't generally discourage my patients. Do you? I don't. My husband would say there's the possibility in the future that we might find it leads to bacterial resistance. Um, but I agree. I don't think there's a lot of downside to trying a probiotic. Right. Right. So you had mentioned there are three that you like in your arsenal that Miralax you mentioned, magnesium. Did we forget the third or was it probiotic? Lactulose. It's lactulose. Lactulose is a unsung hero. Um, parents generally don't know about it because it requires a prescription. And I think I talked to a lot of pediatricians about it. And once they get comfortable using it, they will start to love it. Lactulose is a, sh it's, it's sugar but it's a sugar our bodies is not are not capable of absorbing. So it sits in your intestines and it pulls a bunch of water. Think about if your kid ate, drank too much juice or you gave them a lot of grape juice or prune juice, it's, it works in that same way. It's given as a syrup liquid in a small volume. So like, you know, a tablespoon-ish, depending on the size of your child. So in a child who takes syrupy medicine, it's a very easy to give medication and very easy to titrate. I love it for younger, kind of like the infant to toddlers. It's my go-to favorite thing to use. This is so great because honestly, whenever I hear GI doctors talk about laxatives, I feel like the answer tends to be Miralax, Miralax, Miralax. You know, we should put Miralax in the water, Miralax is a solution. It's nice to hear that there are alternatives that you find helpful. I mean, I'm a Absolutely. fan of Miralax, but it's nice to hear those yeah, other options. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think so much of it has to do with think about your child and think about what are the factors that, that are there, right? And so I have kids who really hate syrup medicines. And so a lot of the ch chewable versions I found or the alternatives I found, I found as I was trying to come up with things for my own children. So you don't, if, if your pediatrician prescribes you something and you are struggling to give it to your child call them and let them know. And, and we'll come up with an alternative. We have our favorites. We all have our kind of go-to medicines, but there are many choices out there. If your doctor doesn't hear from you what your issues are, then we, we can't help. But if we do help, it sounds like there's a lot of good options. Yeah. And, and especially when I'm treating constipation, if I'm seeing certain patients, I'll see them back every two weeks in the initial phase, because a lot of it has to do with troubleshooting and finding our happy place. 
And where I get really kind of frustrated is, you know, I'll see someone after a month and I'll say, okay, you know, how are things going? They're like, oh yeah, he really hated the medicine. We haven't been taking it. And so a, a quick phone call, so many of us use patient portals or email, a quick message along the lines of like, my kid won't take this or this isn't working. What should I change? Will will go a long way, I think. I have a lot of patients that are reluctant to take recommended laxatives because they want a natural option. Do you think there are natural remedies that we can offer parents that are not as inclined to use a, uh, you know, an over-the-counter medication? I think magnesium falls into that category. And I think that's okay. why I've, I've used a lot of it and parents feel really comfortable with it. Um, very old school people used to give mineral oil, for example. Mineral oil isn't absorbed and and it works. It's very gross. It's, it's actually really challenging. Um, some people used to give castor oil. Within the diet, you can make some manipulations. Um, one of the things I really like to use are chia seeds and flax seeds. So flax seeds, once they're ground into a flax meal, it, you can easily mix them in with food. So it will go into muffins, it'll go into oatmeal, you may mix them into your smoothie, um, and even savory foods. Chia seeds, the way I like to use them are to pre-soak them. So you'll, if you see, if you've ever purchased chia seeds, they're dry, kind of tiny seeds. And once they sit in water, they'll absorb the water and they get kind of this gelatinous coating, very similar to the tapioca balls in, in boba, right? Have you ever had a drink with chia seeds? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. No. I, and I love boba. So yeah. It's a, it's a family favorite. It's, it's an, it's either a love it or hate it kind of texture chia seeds. But yes. what you, the way you want to use them is you want to soak them in water and then mix them. So at our house, my, my kids like the texture of chia seeds. We, we will soak chia seeds in a jar with water, rose water and a little bit of sugar. And so they will sit overnight. They're kind of get that really expanded, not enough so that it's a puddingy texture. It's still liquid. And then they'll have a, a glass of that. Um, flaxseed oil, there's, there are like two or three actual research studies on it can be helpful. You give one to two tablespoons a day. So there are things out there. Um, there are a lot of other kind of dietary things. So celery juice is hot. You hear a lot of adults that are drinking celery juice on an empty diet, uh, on an empty stomach. There's no research, but again, anecdotally for some people, it's a game changer. I just don't see how you're getting your five-year-olds to drink celery juice every day. What about rectal suppositories? Good question. Um, there is a time and place for them. And I think generally, if you're now getting to four or five days without a bowel movement, it you just got to get it out. And so you, you do need to use them. But the, if you can prevent your child from ending up in that place, you're going to be much better off. So I'm not against the use of them, but a few things happen. One is many of these children are already kind of toilet avoidant, having kind of drama, for lack of a better term, around that part of their body. And we just reinforce that by sticking something in their butt. The second thing is that the word dependence is not the right word, but when you when a child gets a lot of rectal stimulation in order to poop, they start to really rely on that very intense sensation to initiate a bowel movement. 
Um, and what we really want them to do is recognize urge and then be able to kind of trigger and, and, and sit down and have a proper bowel movement. So I don't love using them too much, but I think that there's a time and a place for them. I'm just wondering when you had your own kids, cause you're a mom of three, um, are you, are there certain strategies that you've implemented with your own kids because you see constipation so, so often? Um, you know, what's funny is my, my daughter, when we toy the train, my daughter, she's a, she's always been very smart, very sassy, very controlling kid. And we, we did amazing with pee. And then she started withholding stool on the toilet. She, she would not poop in the toilet. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is what I do for a living. Um, and then she got the stomach flu and I went to work and I told the nanny, just, just forget about the toilet. And I came home and she was fully toiletrine. And what happened is once the poops are so loose and soft, you really can't hold them. And once those kids get out a couple of poops and they're like, oh my God, okay, like that was okay. They really take off from there. So I think the, the biggest thing is really finding ways to get your kid on the toilet, get the poops really, really soft and, and take them from there. And that's one of the reasons I love scheduled toilet sitting. Have we talked about scheduled toilet sitting? No, let's talk about it. The idea here is children will withhold for various reasons. And then also, as we talked about, a lot of times you lose your recognition of urge until there's a lot of poop. So for many children, a set time you're going to put them on the toilet is important. And what that looks like depends on your age. Middle school and high school students across the board don't want to poop at school. You agree? I totally agree. Yeah. Almost like, you know, I've heard everything. The toilet paper is bad. The bathrooms are dirty. The girls are like talking about weird things. Like there are so many reasons these children don't want to go to the bathroom at school. No. And I remember clearly when I was in middle school, I did not want to use that restroom. It smelled different. It was yeah. never clean. I don't blame them. And then they're busy. They're not coming home right after school. And then they get home and the urge is gone right? So you'll feel urge. And if you don't evacuate, eventually your body's going to recalibrate and the poop sits there and the urge is gone. So for high school students, I'm a huge fan of a once a day. I love after dinner, give yourself five minutes on the toilet. For younger children, it looks a little bit different. So the child that you're, you have a lot of withholding behaviors and what does withholding actually look like? So this is what parents often think is these children are struggling to get the poop out. And then I'll describe it to them and I'll say, no, they're actually struggling to hold the poop in. So this is the kid who hides in a corner in their closet every time they need to go to the bathroom. And they're doing weird things with their body, crossing their legs, stiffening their whole body, standing up against a wall, and they're uncomfortable and they're writhing and all of these things are happening. That child feels urge and is doing everything they can to hold that poop in because maybe they had a painful bowel movement, maybe they're afraid of the toilet, who knows what happened. And often parents will recognize that and then will say, okay, you know, Lucy, let's get on the toilet. And Lucy is already in this, there is no way I am letting this poop come out of my butt, right? She's full blown into the tantrum. You're not going to get her on the toilet at that point. So the idea with scheduled toilet sitting is that if you proactively put them on the toilet before urge has kicked in, and if you can get the poop soft and you can get them to bear down, 
they're going to just have these kind of very surprising poops. And, and that's what we take advantage of. So for younger children, I generally will say three times a day as a starting point. After meals, we talked about that reflexive kind of movement of your intestines that happen after meals. And a toilet sit is not, let's take 15 books and mom's going to read books to you while you sit on the toilet. A toilet sit is active toilet sitting, which is challenging to get a toddler to do. So the first part of it is what do you look like when you're sitting on the toilet? If you get into a deep squatting position and you try to squeeze your butt, it's very challenging. So you want your child sitting on the toilet in that squatting position. That's why the squatty potty is so popular. I love them. If you don't have one, use stools, use the yellow pages, use whatever you have in your house. So knees at the level of the chest helps them relax and open their pelvic floor. And it's not unusual. Kids don't love getting in that position because they know the poop's going to come out. The second part is, how do we get them to push? How do you explain to a four-year-old what to do? You actually don't. You don't talk about poop at all. You really try to divert their attention. So my favorite games are things like blowing up balloons. And the parents are like, oh my God, there's no way he could blow up a balloon. I know he can't blow up a balloon, but that maneuver, what you're doing with your body is exactly what you need to be doing when you're actually trying to pass the bowel movement. But now the attention's on the balloon and not on what's going to come out of my butt. So balloons, bubbles, straw in a cup of water, harmonica. And one of my favorites is you take the parent who, and I, we ask them in clinic, we say, Which, who farts more, your mom or your dad? And they'll be like, oh, it's my mom. You take someone in the bathroom with you and whoever farts first wins the game. Because a fart is exactly the same thing that you need to do with your butt as, as a poop is. Um, and we do a lot of that kind of stuff. Older children, the teenagers, also I give them kind of toilet sitting instructions in terms of positioning and active bear down. A lot of teenagers sit on the toilet for, you know, 30 minutes on their phone scrolling. And that's, you might as well be sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about active toilet sits. Um, one of the biggest kind of things I hear from parents is the only way I can get them on the toilet is with the iPad. Is that one you, you hear often? Absolutely. Yeah. Electronics, so then, definitely. Yes. So what ends up happening is you're prolonging the sitting and it's all passive. They're not actually engaging. So my recommendation in those situations is toilet minutes earns iPad minutes. So if you do your active toilet sitting, you can earn your iPad minutes as your reward for having done that, for example. You're generous. <laughs> it doesn't actually, I have to be honest, we don't do that at my house, but we don't have anyone that's toilet avoidant at my house. You can use other behavioral reward systems as well. So in our office, we have this... Um, little calendar and there are these Pumoji stickers and you mark every time you do a toilet sit, you get a sticker. And if something comes out, you get two stickers and then we will talk about the rewards. So we have a closet up front. It's called the poop closet. And, and kids know if they bring me back their completed calendar or I, I love pictures of poop. Some kids will do all, they'll do all kinds of things. They get a ticket and they get to choose a toy from the closet. You can do that at home. So we have negotiated with the parents all kinds of things. One of my patients earned a laptop, one earned a trip to Disneyland, one earned a cell phone. So a lot of children, and especially what you'll find is children in that six to seven-year-old age range who are still having accidents, but they're not necessarily ashamed of it yet, they're not super motivated. And so 
giving an external motivation, an external source of motivation is really helpful for those kids. What I love about hearing you talk about this is I think that for so many families, they are worried about the social implications. So they don't talk about it and they don't realize how common this is. So hearing you talk about all these different stories, I hope people listening realize if they're going through it, they're not alone. That's a really, really good point. There's typically a parent who gets very frustrated with the situation. And uh, listen, I'm not telling you I don't yell at my kids. I'm not saying that I don't get frustrated with my kids. But if we can check ourselves and recognize that that pattern of behavior is feeding into the whole toilet drama, it will go a long way. So keeping calm, cool, collected and making it not a, a power struggle between the parent and the child is helpful. I really find that one of the ways I'm most helpful is I'm just an external person. And so what I will tell the families, and I, I, maybe you do this in your clinic, is I'll tell them, say, Dr. D wants to see the picture of your poop. Oh, Dr. D gave, gave you the calendar. The, the parents just need to be sometimes removed from the whole pattern of behavior. That makes sense. Now, and, just to end, um, remind everybody there's, there's, hope, there's hope if they're going through the situation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you, I, I take care. I almost don't even see him anymore, but I saw this boy initially as a 15 year old. He was in high school. He was playing club baseball and he had been to Boston. He'd been all over. He'd had all kinds of testing and he was still struggling with severe constipation and very, very frequent stooling accidents. And we worked together. We did, he, he was so severe. We started with rectal therapies and we made progress and worked our way up and saw each other regularly. And over the course of nine months to about a year, the next summer, he went to sleepaway camp, completely, completely problem-free. There is a lot. And, and that's why I love doing this is people are so frustrated. And so they're really struggling, but it's not that hard to fix it. I think the biggest takeaway I will give people is it's generally not one thing. So I never send someone out of my office with just a prescription without a behavioral plan. And many people will come and they'll say, oh my God, you're telling me to do something I've already done before. Like I've already done scheduled toilet sitting or I've already used laxatives, but most people haven't done them all together. And it's that combination of addressing the behaviors making the poops so soft you cannot hold them in and they'll never, ever, ever be painful. And really being consistent and having some kind of reward, that's where you see the most benefits usually. Where can people find you? If they want to come and, and visit you in your clinic, how can they find you? Um, you know, a lot of people find me on the playground at school. <laughs> no. Um, I do a lot of toileting consults on the playground. I work at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and I generally only see patients out of our satellite office in Santa Monica. Um, and so it's fantastic. I love treating this issue. For people who live far away, we do telehealth visits as well, and, and they're equally as effective. You just have to go buy the toys at Target or Amazon. Um, because if, if, you know, a lot of kids will come back f fairly frequently to visit the closet if we're working on the behavior piece of it. But I, I really genuinely en enjoy doing this in my practice. And I love talking to parents and pediatricians about it because once you find the right technique, it, it, it's a game changer, right? 
Absolutely. I, I quote you all the time in my office. I'm sure any of my patients listening who've had kids who've had constipation, I've heard me use the scrunchie analogy. I'm going to have to brand some uh, Dr. D Pumoji scrunchies. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I, I know a lot of people listening will find this very helpful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica. See you next Monday.